0: Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was was, commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God Stands forever. This is God's word for us tonight as we bring this study of the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus to a close. So, I don't know about you. Um, I like to read, but I'm not an avid reader. But I really get turning, in, turning through books when I'm in a series of books and I know that there's more story coming after the next book and I can't wait to get to the next end. Maybe I do the same thing with TV series that I get really into. Maybe you do that too. You can't wait to get to the next season and see what happens. Uh, nothing really did this, nothing has done this to me quite like the Harry Potter books. Carrie got me into Harry Potter after we got married, I'd never read them, uh, and I started reading them, and the s- six were out at the time, and I read the first six in like three months. And then uh, Carrie was eight months pregnant with our first child, and I waited at midnight in Kroger for the seventh book, um, and then stayed up as late as I could. Like, I've never done that with anything, Right. Um, and it, the seventh book was satisfying, it was good, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed the whole series looking back at all of it, but it didn't take long, right, it didn't take long after finishing Harry Potter and reflecting upon all that uh, that, uh, that I'd read and enjoyed that I had that realization, I don't get to go back to Hogwarts anymore, right, you, you get to the end and you realize, like this, in a sense, the story's over and it was satisfying, but I want it to keep going. And in a sense, it leaves you with this feeling of interest. Any great TV show, any time you've ever churned through seasons of a TV show, you get the same feeling. Like maybe it ends well and you're glad the way it ended. But at the same time, you're like, but I want more of it. And you're left with this feeling of incompleteness, incompletion. And if you've been following the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus, perhaps this seems right like an odd way to end. There's this glaring sense that what God set out to do or whatever has happened in this book isn't complete. It's actually pretty incomplete. Um, And there's this sense of like what's next and the fact that that question is left very unanswered. You don't know, are they going to make it? Are they going to screw this up again? There's a sense that you look at this part of the story and you get towards the end of the book and you're like, this can't be it, right? There's got to be like a little bow we can tie on it or something. But what I'm going to suggest to you tonight as we round this out, is that I believe the sense of incompletion is precisely the point. Okay, so we've been looking at the never-ending story, and every week we've looked at a story of something. Tonight, I want to look at a story incomplete. I want to look at three things. Rebellion, remedy, and restoration. Okay? The first one here is rebellion. Uh, Walker Percy, the author, he said, uh, he's a very quotable person, but one, one quote I love that I read of his was, Bad books lie, but they lie most of all about the human condition. Bad books lie, but they lie most of all about the human condition, right? They don't treat real life uh, truly. They don't give it to you the way that it really happens. And again, we get that sense as we read this at the end of this book, after all that God has done, after all the people have gone through, you get this sense of like, this really isn't how it's going to end, is it? They're going to like basically it's going to end with their tail in between their legs because they have royally screwed this up. Uh, We're left with Israel's abject failure in the light of all the miraculous and amazing things that God has done for them. I want you to note it's pretty interesting in these chapters, the word sin is used 11 times. That word has only been used 10 times in the entire book up to this point. And so what the author is getting across to us is that they have screwed up. They have sinned. It is serious. They have done a bad thing. Right? And we get that, I think. Israel has grossly and shamelessly rebelled. Interesting to note, let me see what verse it is. Uh, verse 6 there in chapter 32, we read, that sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That phrase in Hebrew, rose up to play, is used in Genesis. Uh, when Isaac goes... I can't, remember, I can't remember it was Egypt. I can't remember. Isaac goes with his wife, Rebekah, and tells the king that his wife is his sister. But then he sees them playing and realizes it's not his sister and his wife. You get the implication of what's going on in the camp. It's basically an orgy going on. That's how grave what is going on here is happening. God's delivered them from Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. He delivered them through the sea with a mighty act of salvation. He fed them in the wilderness with mighty acts of provision. He's laid out these detailed provisions about how he wants to be with them and how he wants them to come into his presence and worship them. And then they do this. They rebel. They want to follow their own hearts. They want to follow their own hearts on their own time. So the question is... What have they done? What is this rebellion? Well, I want you to look. It's kind of interesting. Look at verse 5, 32 verse 5, where Aaron says, look, tomorrow we feast to the Lord. So they've screwed up, but like Aaron is still calling upon the Lord. And so in a sense, they didn't replace God. What they've done is they said, we want God to be in our image. We'll follow that God. That's the God that we want. So they're not guilty necessarily of replacing God, but instead of trying to make God into their own image. And they say, they look what they said to Aaron. They said, make us a God who will go before us. Question, what has God been doing in the wilderness? Going before them in a pillar of cloud and fire. But the point is, that's not the God that they wanted. They didn't have any control over that God. That God didn't respond to their timing when they wanted things and they wanted it now. And so they make God after their own image. This quote, I remember I Googled this quote, but you'll see it attributed to a bunch of people who are anonymous, but mostly it's usually attributed to Mark Twain. And maybe you've heard it, but it's this, that God created man in his image and man being a gentleman has been returning the favor ever since. That's what we do, isn't it? God created the world and God creates us as his image to bear his image in the world. And us being gentlemen and gentlewomen, we've been repaying him the favor ever since by trying to make him in our image to do what we want. So look, if you're here tonight, you're not at Sadie Robertson or doing whatever else you'd be doing on Wednesday night when there was not a scheduled RUF. You at least have some interest in God, right? You're here. You're at a Bible study. You're giving your time to that before exams. I want you to wrestle with for a second. Who is God to you? What is God to you? What do you want from God? Maybe you know the answers to those questions really firmly. Maybe you haven't Maybe wrestled with them as much as maybe you should have. Israel had God. God had come to them. God had saved them. God had redeemed them. He had guided them. He had provided for them. But what they wanted from God was only what they wanted from God. Everything else was kind of like, yeah, 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 that's fine. Do it later. I mean, I, I want you to think about it. Do you want to know God? Do you want to grow in this thing called the knowledge of God? Do you want to know God? One thing that we all have to wrestle with is this question. Are we prepared? Are you prepared? Are you okay with the fact that you can only know God? On his terms. I want you to think this just flows logically. I don't don't want to go on too long a rabbit trail here. But if there is a God who created everything, meaning everything that exists comes from him. If there is any knowledge of him to be had, it logically flows that the only knowledge that we could possibly have of him is that which he has chosen to let us have. Does that make sense? And so are you prepared? Are you okay with the fact that you can only know God on his terms? Because this is what I'm trying to suggest to you why I say that. That is the main thing that our culture doesn't like about this God, the God of the Bible. Like they like some things about the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible, but they don't want God on his terms. That's archaic, right? That's paternalistic, that's colonialism, whatever. Are you prepared? Are you okay with the fact that you can only know God on his terms? Are you at least just willing to admit that a God of your own making is just that? And that's it. He can't be anything else. A God of your own making cannot be anything more than that. And look, some of you... Some of you think about this a lot. You long for a relationship with God. You long to grow in a relationship with God. You long to be more confident in what this thing is. You want this relationship to be real and to be tangible. But some of you have a God that never crosses you. Some of you have a a relationship with a God that never looks at your life and says, I'm not okay with that. Because you have a God that is convenient and comfortable. If you've you've learned anything from this story, I hope you've seen God is anything but convenient and comfortable. It's not who he is. You know, the God who just like is content. Well, I'll just let him figure things out for a while. College is a time to explore those things, right? Um, You know, a God who's just fine letting you, uh, you know, I don't expect you to be perfect. I know you're just having a little fun. We can talk about that stuff later. God doesn't deal with things like that. Especially things that go against him. You know, look, I know you're young. I know you got your rest of your life to be married. It's just sex, right? We'll talk about it later. Or look, I know you want to be successful. I'll be here once you're done pursuing that success at the cost of everything else in your life. Israel's rebellion here, what we're being very tangibly shown here, their rebellion here was sin. Because they wanted God, they wanted a relationship with God on their terms. It leads to impatience. It leads to idolatry. It leads to outright perverse rebellion. But you've got to see the problem. Either when it comes to knowing God, and again, I think this just logically follows if you're talking about the God of the Bible or not. Either you have God as he has revealed himself to be. Or you have a golden calf on a leash. And that's it. A golden calf on a leash. What is a golden calf on a leash worth? Dead weight. That's about it. You can just like picture the far side cartoon where you're just like, they're trying to pull it. Like, come on, lead us into the wilderness. See how that works, right? Well, let's move on. So that's just, that's their rebellion This is where they're at. It's it's serious. Uh, There's no glossing over that. But what I want to move into is how Moses begins to deal with it. Moses immediately seeks a remedy. Okay, he knows that they've messed up. He knows their sin is great. Right, verse thirty. You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up and perhaps I can make atonement. I love that. There's only a perhaps. I don't know if God's going to listen to me, but I'm going to try. And what's beautiful here, if you've been paying attention to Moses at all, and why we've honed in on him so often in these stories, is his story has really come full circle, hasn't it? Because his story begins and his story arc all along the way is all about him becoming the mediator that God is trying to make him be, make him into. God has raised him up specifically for this purpose to be the mediator between God and his people. And we see that he's become that. He's become what God's been praying. You see that he no longer argues out of his own selfish motives. He doesn't argue about himself. He doesn't say, God, why did you send me? He doesn't say that this time. What does he say? Look what he says. What's interesting about what Moses says here in verses 12 and following is that he knows that he has no claim to make on himself. And he knows that he has no claim to make on behalf of the people. And so what is the claim that he makes? I want you to look at it. And here's the question. Do you want to know what faith looks like? Here it is. He knows that he has not one single plea to make for himself and not one single plea to make on behalf of the people. And so what is the plea based on? God. And God alone. Look at how he does this. Look at verse 13. He says, God, remember what you said. So in a sense there, there's an admittance. There's an admission of <laughs> we screwed up. Moses has no claim himself. He knows the people have no claim. And he knows that God is the only place. He says you made the promise. You said you would bless the people. You must uphold the glory of your own name and do what you said you were going to do. That can be the only answer here. And what's God's response to it? He relents. He says, Okay. And look down at uh, verse 32 uh, of chapter 32. That's even more remarkable because Moses looks at God and says, look, God, don't give them what they deserve. Because they deserve you to blot them out. Blot me out instead. I want you to go back and read Exodus chapter 2 and then go back to this and see how full circle Moses has come. Read Exodus chapter 3 and how insecure he was. And now see where, look, they have royally screwed up. They deserve you to wipe them out. But don't do it. Take me instead. But here's what's interesting. God rejects his offer. You see that? He rejects it. He says, no, they're going to bear their sin for now. But here's the thing, implicit in the story is that ultimately, that is what it's going to take. Not an animal, but a person. At some point, a person is going to have to step up and take this. But not right now, Moses. I want you to listen to how the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, because also implicit in the story here is that there is someone coming who will do it one day. And the author of Hebrews picks this up. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a holy heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why is that? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Jesus is faithful over all God's house as a son. See what the story is ultimately pointing us to here? See, God doesn't reject Moses' idea because Moses is wrong. Actually, Moses is actually very right. But what God is rejecting is the fact that Moses, you're not fit for it. You can't do it. You can't bear the sins of other people. It won't do anything. But implicit, again, implicit in the story is God saying, but I know who can. And I know who will. But it's not time for that yet. Moses couldn't satisfy the wrath of God. Moses couldn't bear the sin of others because he was only a servant. And so God is basically saying, only my son could do that. But let's stop there for a second. Because, like, okay, now we've painted a nice little Jesus on this story. Does that just make it better all of a sudden? Why is God so vengeful? Why, why does he have to do something about it? Did you detect the humanness to God in this story? He stirred up in anger. He argues with Moses. He's frustrated. He regrets his past actions. He regrets delivering them from Egypt, y'all. Look, I'm just going to wipe them out and I'm going to make a nation out of you, Moses. He changes his mind. He relents from that after he says it. Did you detect a humanness to God? Isn't that weird? What is this? Well, we know, look, if we read the Bible, God reveals who he is and, and what he's like. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he's all powerful. We know that he's unchanging. We know that he's holy. We know that he's exalted. We know that he's mighty. That really is who he is. But we cannot miss... How He reveals these things to us. Because the way that he reveals himself to us and reveals himself to Moses and the people here, he's approachable. And he wants to be approached. I want you to think about it. What's going on in the mind of God when he says, oh Moses, by the way, your people are down there screwing everything up. Why does God even take the time to tell Moses that? Why doesn't God just pick up his cloud and go down there and set everything on fire? He could have done that and he would have been perfectly holy and just in doing it. And it would have been a good thing because God was the one doing it. It's not what he does. Why? Because he's approachable. And he wants to be approached and he wants to provide a remedy. But he is not okay with what they're doing. He's not. He's angry. Legitimately angry. Now again, I want you to think to yourself. Do you understand? Do you understand why God gets so upset? When you read stories like this in the Bible, do you understand? Do you try to understand why is it that God is so moved? Emotionally moved, it seems. Why does he get so upset? Why does he get so frustrated? Because he really does grieve over our sin. He grieves over because it really does break his heart. He doesn't like it. It hurts him. Why? Because he really does love you. It's not just because he's offended. How dare you sin against me? He never says that. He could have. And he should have, maybe it breaks his heart. It grieves him because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. That's why. He really does want what's best for you, you know, and there are, you know, some of you, you have patterns that you, you can't seem to break and you know it. You have these things that you hold in secret that you've never been able to tell anybody else. And you try to deal with it, but the pattern just repeats over and over again. Things that make you feel dirty. Things that make you feel perverse. Things that make you feel utterly unlovable and unapproachable. And those things really do break his heart. Why? Because he knows the damage that they are doing to you. And the damage that they're doing to everything in your life, whether you admit it or not. Some of you, you have things that you want to let go, but you just haven't been able to figure out how. Others of you have things that you haven't been able to let go of because you don't want to. Both of them need to be repented of and turned away from. And if you don't repent of them and turn away from them, the consequences are eternal. The Bible tells us this consistently. No character in the Bible talks about hell more than... Jesus talks about it in very frank terms. Both equally break God's heart and both equally displease him. He's not okay with these things in our lives. But they grieve him and they displease him because he loves you. Have we missed that? That's what he says over and over again. Therefore, because he loves us, catch this, he's determined to provide the remedy. He determined it. And he loves you so much. Now get this. He loves you so much that he is going to demand that you accommodate your life to the realities of his truth. He's going to, he's going to say to you, if you'll let him, if you'll listen and open your eyes to these things in your life, he's going to say, that is not okay. And you need to stop. But I'm telling you this because I love you. He's going to demand that we accommodate our lives to the realities of his being and now look, some of us might say, but look, that's not how relationships work. That is really one-sided. But I want you to think about the whole story of the Bible. Is it so one-sided? We looked at this in Philippians in the fall. i read it again in Philippians chapter 2. Remember, he demands that we accommodate our lives to the reality of his being. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, Jesus will be so bold as to demand, because he's the king and he has every right, to demand that you accommodate your life to the realities of his being. And though he didn't have to, he accommodated his life to the realities of yours. So that you could know that he's with you and that he is determined to bring that remedy to its proper end. Sounds great. How do we know? Final thing here. Restoration. Because this whole account, everything that happens here, ends here in chapter 34. Moses' intercession. Chapter 33, you might be familiar with it. Uh, there's, a, there's a part where Moses asked God if he can see his glory. And God says, no, I can't do that. You'll die. Uh, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And you can see, like, the side of it. Um, it's an interesting story. And then in chapter 34, what we read here, those couple of verses, is what happens from then on out. Moses goes and meets with God weekly. And every time he comes out, his face is shining. And so he puts a veil over his face. And so the whole account ends in chapter 34 with Moses' shining face. This shining face meant once and for all to show the people that Moses has the authority of God. This Shining face meant once and for all to show them and to show us that Moses' intercession on their behalf has restored them despite their sin. What has it restored them to? It's restored them to being with God and knowing God. Okay? So why is it the shining face? Why does this do it? It's interesting. Paul actually takes this up in 2 Corinthians 3. It's rather fascinating. Listen to how Paul comments on this shining face in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope and we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, the way Paul says that is a little hard to follow, so let me summarize what Paul says. Do you see what Paul's saying? I always read this in Exodus, that Moses put a veil on his face because it was freaky that his face was shining. Paul says Moses put a veil on his face because the the glory, the shine, faded. Faded. And he didn't want the people to see it fade. And it would only shine again every time he would go meet with God. Moses put on a veil because the glory that was reflected on his face was a fading glory. It was a temporary glory. It was an incomplete glory. One that had to be restored every time he went to meet with God. And now maybe you think you know where I'm going. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where the author there tells us, well, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. doesn't just reflect it. He is it. But I want you to listen to Paul again in 2 Corinthians 3. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now catch this. Since we have such a hope, we... Are very bold, not like Moses. (laughs) Do you see the point of comparison? The point of comparison is not Moses and Jesus. The point of comparison is Moses and us, you and me. That's the point of comparison. You see, the restoration that God is working here is knowing him, is knowing God. That's what we were created for. So what Paul is telling us and what the rest of the Bible tells us is that we who are in Christ, we reflect the glory of God with unveiled faces because the glory we have is complete. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. All of us, not just the pastors, not just the missionaries, not just the saints, all of us. man i love this story y'all let's bring it in for a landing if you don't get anything else from this semester tune in right here do you understand why that is moses met with god face to face but the glory faded I've been to Bible studies in church and I maybe walked the aisle and Peter says that I have that glory fully, more than Moses had it. Do you understand why that is? It is because full atonement has been made. It is because full restoration is ours now. In Christ. That's it. One of the more fascinating connections with this book is Luke chapter 9. Remember, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up on a mountain. And we we are told that in their presence, he was transfigured before them. We read that. Uh, His face was altered and his clothes became a dazzling white. He wasn't reflecting God's glory. God's glory was coming out of him. And these three disciples saw it with their own eyes. And the interesting thing that we're told is that Moses and Elijah show up and are talking to Jesus. Now, I want you to think about Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Um, Elijah. You want to know what commonly defines Moses and Elijah? Their earthly ministries were left incomplete. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. He dies and God buries him on a hill on the outside of it. Elijah doesn't even get to die. He just gets taken up by a chariot up into heaven. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, their collective ministries, on them hangs an entire world religion. Their ministries are defined by their incompleteness, their incompletion. And listen to what we read there in Luke, Luke chapter 9. Luke tells us that Elijah and Moses were there to talk to Jesus about his departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. A little Greek lesson for you. You want to know what the word departure is in the Greek? Exodon Does that sound familiar? They were about they were talking to him about his exodus which he was about to accomplish. You know what the Greek word accomplish means? Complete. It's like Moses and Elijah with all the disappointment that their lives end with. They get this moment, God gives them this moment to see it come to completion. To actually talk to Jesus about it and see it as it takes shape. So this is what it's telling us. You've got to understand, you and me, our story is complete. It is. Because Jesus went through the ultimate exodus, through death itself. And he came out alive on the other side. And because of that, we live too. And here's the even more beautiful part. It's the never-ending story, right? Because from now until he comes again, our story is about that story becoming more and more a reality in our everyday. It is to become a living power. Have you ever wondered why the empty tomb? Like, why the empty tomb? Why the empty tomb? The empty tomb serves for all of history. That when Jesus said it is finished, God said, yes, it is. I leave you with, I wish I had brought the the book itself, but I didn't. I leave you with the last page of the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've never read it, it's amazing. So the last page of the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's the book of Revelation. And John wrote that book. And this is what it says. John came to the end of his book, Revelation. But he didn't write the end. Because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote... Come quickly, Jesus. Which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. Because you see, the most wonderful thing about this story is it's your story, too. What is your story? That's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father could it be Could it be that our stories have already been written? That they already have the happy ending in the most real and ultimate sense that we could even imagine. It's exactly what you've told us. We long for it to be true and we long for our hearts to feel and believe that it's true. Would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.